Neil, where are you? Neil? <laughs> Neil? <laughs> Neil? Okay. Well, if he's not going to take this seriously. <sighs> God, we ask him for one thing, oh, and it's to be a special guest star. For fuck's sake. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly-ish podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Neil Barnholden. And we're here with a very special episode in which the three of us are actually sitting in the same room to talk about a thing. Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> the applause sign just started flashing. And that thing is the number one most requested episode topic, a very Potter musical. And let me just say, I didn't like it. <gasps> I am... Sorry in advance to those of you who wanted us to watch it because you love it. I'm sorry that I don't love it. Um, your your love is your love is yours and your own, and you can give it to whomever and wh- whatever you choose. I didn't love this. Yeah, I mean, you know, people like what they like. Um, but last night, Marcel and I sat down to watch it, and about ten minutes in, Marcel turned to me and said, "I'm so angry right now." Listen, we are busy women and we have very little free time. And then the next maybe another 10 minutes in, uh, I picked up my phone and texted Neil and said, Neil, I'm so, so sorry. I'm so, so sorry we did this to you. Yeah, I I, I had already watched it that afternoon. That's, <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. We, we're, we're not fans of this yeah. fan work. <laughs> I I did just want to say in general, no objections to the concept of fan oh, works yeah. or fan parodies or mm-hmm. or anything like that. It's really yeah. really not about that. Yeah. I know both Neil and I quite enjoy, despite recognizing the many issues with um, Wizard People, Dear Reader. Yeah. Like we both, that's sort of closer to our sense of humor, and it's also just like a silly fan made video. Um, which has, like, we're going to talk about some of the, like, bad bad jokes in a very Potter musical. Not the dumb jokes, the bad jokes. Um, and Wizard People, Dear Reader also has bad jokes in it. Um, so, like, part of it, I guess, is just your sense of humor. So, like, we're going to talk a lot sort of generally about um, adaptation and intermediality and fandom and that kind of thing in this episode and sort of think about this as a media object and what it says about the fandom and you know, the interesting fact of its um, viralness. And then we're probably also going to talk about the stuff that we didn't like about it and why we didn't like it and sort of unpack that a bit because, um, yeah, I'm afraid this is not going to be an episode that comes from a place of like, we love this thing, but also need to be critical of it. It's going to come from a little more from a place of like, this was bad, sorry. (laughs) Which is not usually the spirit of this podcast, but there you go. I don't I also don't normally uh encourage people to um skip things that they don't want to listen to because usually, you know, you should you should 
pay attention to the thing that makes you uncomfortable and and think about why it makes you uncomfortable. But I would say that if you like really, really love this this fan production, don't listen to this episode. I would just skip this episode. Just just move on. Just 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 hit next. Listen to a listen to one from previous seasons. Listen to literally anything else. <laughs> maybe you should maybe just watch a Harry Potter musical instead of listening to this episode. I'm so mad about it. <laughs> I'm so, so mad that I, that I watched it. I'm so mad. Okay, so to give this episode some structure so that it isn't just Marcel rage crying for an hour, we're going to break it into some rough segments, sort of um, some, some borrowed from other kinds of episodes and some just made up on the spot. Um, so first off, because this is an adaptation um, and we need to do some thinking about adaptation, um, it's time for Professor Time with a really angry Marcel. <laughs> if we travel back in time to uh, season one, episode six, I think I I gave a very like stumbly description of what an adaptation is, uh, what an adaptation is supposed to do in order to be an adaptation. And um, this is borrowed from Linda Hutchins, A Theory of Adaptation, second edition. And uh, essentially, the point of Hutchins' discussion of adaptations, uh, the, the sort of the nugget of the thing is that an adaptation needs to be able to stand on its own. Um, you need to be able to watch the adaptation without having encountered the source material, um, and you need to be able to enjoy that adaptation. Uh, you, won't un- you won't enjoy it to the same degree that somebody who has uh, participated in or consumed the source material in some way, but uh, it still needs to be able to stand on its own. It needs to be its own thing. So this is not, this is not that. Um, a very Potter musical doesn't stand on its own, which, and that's not one of my criticisms of it. That's fine. That just makes it an intertext as opposed to uh, an adaptation full stop. And like, and that, and that's fine. Um, so like, uh, there's nothing wrong with intertext. Intertext are delightful and wonderful and fun. And they have various shapes and forms. I just want to ask where parody fits into this dynamic of adaptation to intertext because I saw like the Wikipedia article described this as a parody of the Harry Potter series. I'm wondering if parody in general doesn't function like adaptation because in order to understand the parody, you need to be familiar with the original. So it's closer to an intertext maybe. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, parody predates the term intertext. Um, I want to say that Bell Hooks came up with the term intertext, but that I would need to I would need to look that up. Um, yeah, parodies are age old. Um, they've been around for a long time. My understanding of parodies is that they are they also have different shapes and forms. So you can have a parody of a genre, and you can have a parody of a thing. Um, and the parody of the genre takes the like main principles of that genre and pushes them to the extreme. It just like really amplifies them in such a way as to make them ridiculous. And it's supposed to have like a, mm-hmm. a political message behind it. So parody is very often a kind of satire. So this is very clearly a parody of the Harry Potter world as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say that as a parody, it's, it's a lot less strong than as, than it is an adaptation like it is a stronger adaptation than it is a parody because the parody doesn't seem to have a coherent through line. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what it understands its joke to be. The joke seems to be Harry Potter is stupid. And I don't think that that's what the joke was supposed to be because I don't think anybody participated in it without 
a sense of like fondness. fondness. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I, t- I took for granted that the production was made as a kind of fondness. But yeah. when we were texting last night, Neil, you had mentioned that it was sort of, did you say mean spirited? I think I said that I felt like there was a meanness at the mm-hmm. core of this, mm-hmm. which is very puzzling because I, I agree. It seems, it seems unbelievable that someone would do this out of, you know, because they despise Harry Potter or because they really don't like it. But I, I just felt like the jokes seemed very, I, I didn't feel like there were a lot of kind of affectionate jokes or they crossed some kind of line in my mind where they seemed, again, sort of mean spirited or sort of to come from a place of not really liking any of the characters Mm -hmm. or you know every character at some point just seems to be treated really harshly i don't know i mean i get that i get that that's part of the joke but to me like a a joke that's mean-spirited still is still mean-spirited regardless of being a joke Mm -hmm. right so i wonder if we could place this in the tradition of the roast Mm -hmm. which like as a genre of a public event is like you know so you've got a comedian or a public figure who um, is well known enough, like enough of a celebrity that you can bring a bunch of other comedians and actors and stuff together to sort of publicly eviscerate that person. And the premise of the roast is that it is done in a spirit of fondness, mm-hmm. but that it's deeply mean spirited, but yeah. that getting to the point of celebrity of being roasted, like you go to your roast, right? You right. consent yeah, to it. Yeah getting to the point of celebrity of being roasted is like an honor. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there's something at work in the roast, which is that like in order to make fun of you in those ways, the people making fun of you need to know you well enough Mm -hmm. to make those jokes. Mm -hmm. And so it is like the symbol that you are as a figure are sort of a common enough point of shared public knowledge that a community can get together to like, pick you apart Mm -hmm. and this felt like that to me like that that what was happening here was like a community of people clearly with pretty deep knowledge of harry potter Mm -hmm. which suggests being part of a fandom but getting together to sort of roast harry potter to say here's a thing that we all we all know we love this and so we're going to get together and we're going to point out all of the silliness and all of the foibles and all of the inconsistencies and all of the you know flaws in the characters and um and that we can take this sort of communal pleasure in it as an activity because really what it's signifying is our shared deep knowledge mm-hmm. of this text and that that's maybe where the pleasure lies in part i yeah i like I like your thinking of it as a roast. That makes more sense to me. Harry Potter is definitely a roastable text. It is. It holds all of the honor and position that one needs in order to be roasted. What I would say then about the execution of it is maybe that it was not cleverly done. Like, I'm thinking I wanted just... I know we're going to talk about it more, but I want to just like jump straight to the Cho Chang. (laughs) I don't even know how to describe it. I'm introduction. introduction. introduction Yes. The introduction of Cho Chang, which had the like schlocky racist faux oriental music. was that 
So Ginny goes over to say hello and says, Konnichiwa, Chosheng. It is good to meet you. I am Ginny Weasley. Like slow, pained, like the offensive English you use when you think the person you're speaking to doesn't speak English. Yeah. Yeah. And says it to the one visibly Asian woman in the, the trio who have come in doing prayer hands. Anyway, the oh, whole thing. Yeah. The whole thing. Um, and then the sudden turn is that she was racist for thinking that the Asian woman, the visibly Asian woman was Cho Chang, when in fact Cho Chang was the white Southern woman. Bitch, I ain't Cho Chang. <laughs> That's lavender brown. <laughs> racist sister. Racist. That's racist. I'm Cho Chang, y'all. And like, okay, so we've talked in the podcast before about how Cho Chang has two last names. The text depiction of her is like a based on like deeply reductive racialized Asian nonsense. Um, and so it is possible that in the roast that they are attempting to play on that mm-hmm. to be like, this text is racist. And mm-hmm. so we're going to roast its racistness mm-hmm. by making it more racist, but it's executed in a way that isn't, it isn't clever. It's yeah. just more racist. And it's like more racist in a really, like egregiously offensive way. I'm so mad. I'm so mad about this. It similarly draws on racist cultural depictions of of Asian stereotypes, but it isn't done in a way that like intelligently raises awareness about how racist depiction functions. It instead is just like, haha, this is funny. Look at these funny Asian stereotype tropes. Yeah, so that's a thing. That's one of the reasons why I think it it fails in its attempt at roasting. It is just, it is just racist. Yeah, it's also um, sexist and heteronormative and um, full of jokes about violence against women, like the repeated whatever the fuck Ron is doing to Ginny over and over again. I don't know if that's supposed to be a like a stage slap or if he's just clapping his hands really loudly in her ears uh, this? Uh, this is stupid little dumb sister jenny she's a freshman jenny this is harry harry potter this harry potter oh, you're harry potter you're the boy who lived yeah you're jenny uh, it's ginevra cool jenny's fine stupid sister <laughs> don't crowd the famous friend unclear not funny it's like Violence against women isn't funny. Like, I know that yeah. the joke is that Ron is a shitty older brother and he treats Jenny really poorly. Like, we we get the jokes. Like, it's not funny. So I'm wondering if, because the other, when we're ta- thinking about sort of the genre of the adaptation, right? Like, what's going on here? And the other reference you made last night, Neil, as we were texting, was to this being vaudevillian. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if part of what we're seeing in the sort of um, aggressive foregrounding of racism and sexism and heteronormativity is like part of that that genre. Like that's part of what's happening. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me because to me, I think the way that a very Potter musical works is by also foregrounding the fact that it is a performance. I mean, there's there's nothing there's nothing naturalistic about it, and I don't think that at any moment you're supposed to become so lost in the story that you forget that it's a performance. They're making constant references that break the fourth wall. They're sort of the performance style, I think is appropriately in a really heightened kind of way. Mm -hmm. So when I was saying vaudevillian, that's sort of, that's sort of what I meant is that kind of style of humor where the humor comes to the fact that you're aware that it's a performance. Mm -hmm. And 
I think that that's a terrible way to address things like racism and sexism because what you just do is exaggerate it and and just do it a lot and the joke is just that everyone's aware of what they're doing mm-hmm. which I don't I don't think is a really effective I don't think parody is an effective tool for that mm-hmm. I think there's yeah. like a really specific topic so I feel like it's vaudevillian in that sense it's yeah. the humor comes from the heightened theatricality of everything and I don't I think what doesn't work is addressing subjects like that yeah. that way so vaudeville does have this history of um, exaggerated race performance and ex- exaggerated gender performance, which there are some people who have done some really important, fascinating work about the history of um, sort of black and indigenous performers on the vaudeville stage and the way that sort of vaudeville as one of the uh, a genre of theatrical performance emerging in the context of modernity became a place where people of color could sort of get on stage and perform and start to develop a vocabulary of performance that became very important, but that was constantly catering to the white gaze, to the sort of white supremacist expectation of what racialized performance would look like. So, you know, vaudeville is linked, obviously, to blackface, to yellowface, to um, Jewface was a thing. Mm -hmm. And we get uh, some very strong hints Mm -hmm. of that Mm -hmm. in this, some some sort of deeply, uh, like, Jewish-coded characters um, you know, similarly, the sort of um, cross-dressing is a trope of, of vaudeville. And I use the word cross-dressing advisedly here because what we are talking about, it's not even drag. It's like you are supposed to read that performer as dressed in the gender that they are not, right? Yeah. So Malfoy is like, I think, clearly intended to be read as part of the humor as Malfoy is being played by a woman. And... uh yeah, so this is all like comes out of vaudeville and is all sort of the vocabulary that's being drawn on for the way this performance is working and the kinds of jokes that are happening. And like, I think that you can do smart subversive vaudeville. I know you can. I know that there are people doing smart subversive vaudeville. This is not smart subversive vaudeville. This is just Harry Potter meets vaudeville. And it's funny because there's a bunch of fart jokes and sex jokes, but also Harry Potter's here. <laughs> Sorry, let's just repeat that. If you really love this thing, skip this episode, Klaus. <laughs> but listen to all of our smart conversations about the history of performance. We're academics. <laughs> I wonder if we want to say anything more about the sort of stage adaptation piece of it. Yeah, like we've talked about sort of the vaudeville, the liveness, you know, and there are pieces of that, like, you know, some of the pieces that I liked were pieces that were about the staginess. So there were bits I really enjoyed. I'd say my number one favorite thing was the physicality of the person playing Malfoy, who I keep wanting to call Malcoy because boy, was that a Malcoy performance. (laughs) The way that they are just like, like rolling across pieces of furniture and like, just like flopping around on the ground, like was, was a pretty, like that physicality was delightful. And that was very like theatrical. You couldn't do something like that outside of the sort of space of physical absurdity that the stage allows. And um, I liked the shitty dragon. I was yeah. into that a lot. Yeah. I liked the the sort of humor of bad special effects. So the moment when it's revealed that the Zac Efron poster is a horcrux and like the guy playing Voldemort just runs out on stage and sticks his face through the poster, which is obviously being cut out so that it will just pop out as he sticks his face in. Yeah. Um, like there were moments of that kind of like, absurdist like slapsticky physical humor that i found really charming and that that's like purely a genre affordance you can't 
do that outside the vaudeville stage. Yeah, I want to. I I definitely want to emphasize that the complaints and 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 uh, discomfort that we have with it has nothing to do with its like like low yeah. production budget. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, it's no. not. It it isn't because the special effects are shouting the name of the jinx and then the person doing the jinx saying I have jelly legs. Like that's not that's not the problem. <laughs> that would all have been very delightful. The way they just shout disapparate and then leave. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's very funny. Yeah. Um, this conversation is is making me realize, like, I had really high expectations for what this is going to be, given how much people have liked yeah. it, and and having seen it and been heartbroken. Uh, but now having this conversation, like, I think that it that the idea of a Harry Potter vaudeville esque kind of parody has so much potential to it um, and could be really, really funny. Because, I mean, some of these things are really funny. I was thinking I was thinking about this stage production as being the opposite of Cursed Child in that sense, that it really does... It, I think it makes quite the virtue, actually, of having no budget and being mm-hmm. um, sort of slapped together in that way. I mean, I think that works quite well, actually. I, I also found the, um, the physical humor of Quirrell and Voldemort... Their, their physical style of acting being the same person at the same time. I, I mean, I quite enjoyed that. It's yeah. a really simple joke, but it's, yeah. as Hannah says, it's very theatrical. It really only works on stage. And I mean, that was quite funny. Yeah. And yeah, no, I, I totally agree. The, the production value, they really make a virtue out of the production values, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, in a lot of ways, it wouldn't work if it was done with some kind of ridiculous cursed child level of oh, stagecraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I also really liked the way that that all of the books were very sloppily smushed together, mm-hmm. and and like the film, a bunch of the like film references were all sort of smushed together. Mm-hmm. That all of those things were just kind of like overlapped, and the fact that Harry was supposed to be twelve all the way through <laughs> was amazing. Yeah. The fact that like Voldemort peeled himself off of Quirrell's back, and like and like Quirrell is still there, like all of that is. All of that is very yeah. funny. The fact that Molly Weasley came in and was like, I came here with all of these people. And they're like, where are they? And she's like, they're all dead. Like, that was, that was funny. What are you doing here? We came here with the Order of the Phoenix, Lupin, Tong, Smad, I'm Moody, Sirius Black, and your brother Fred. Oh, great. Where are they? They're all dead. <laughs> anyway, just came here to save your lives. Go back to what you were doing. Like the way that they, the way that they collapsed the whole world together had so many really funny parts to it. I also found that really interesting. And I was wondering if either of you know the concept of the culture text. It's a concept and adaptation. I can't, I think the scholar's name is Paul Davis, but that sounds like the kind of name that I would make up because I forgot someone's real name. I think the scholar's name is Paul Davis, but he he's a Victorianist and he was studying adaptations of A Christmas Carol. And he gradually realized that what happened to A Christmas Carol is that it stopped being adapted and it became a text that lives without being attached to any particular fixed text. So when you see, you know, a Flintstones Christmas Carol, it's not an adaptation of the actual novel. It just takes up some of the same story ideas. And I will say that I did low-key find that really fascinating about a Harry Potter musical, that it's not a parody of any particular Harry Potter text, mm-hmm. and that it's sort of the story takes from the text in an interesting way. And I wonder if what you see in that is the beginning of Harry Potter as a culture text. I shouldn't say beginning, but Harry Potter as a culture yeah. text, so not 
not as a specific fixed novel or play, but as a kind of idea of a story that is not attached. Is that like how every cover of Hallelujah is a cover of Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah? I think it is. Like not a single person who covers Hallelujah has ever heard Leonard Cohen sing it. Like no, none of them. None of them. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? my year abroad who was an American who said that Hallelujah was a Jeff Buckley song. And I was like, you shut your mouth. That is a Leonard Cohen song. And she was like, who's ever heard of Leonard Cohen? And I was like, we are having a symbolic fight right now. Yeah, I mean, the the other thing that came to mind when you were referencing the culture text um, is Frankenstein. Yes. Right? Which is like very much, like I was watching, I've been rewatching Buffy and there's an episode of Buffy that is like, full of Frankenstein illusions, but Frankenstein illusions that are not about, like are not at all allusions to Frankenstein, the book. They're allusions to Frankenstein, the culture text. So like it's season one and it's this kid has, has brought his, his football playing older brother back to life who is living as this Frankenstein monster in the basement and has promised to make him a bride. And so has been collecting the corpses of teen girls who have died, but he but needs a fresh brain, and so is going to murder a teenage girl to get her head. Um, it's a real fucked up episode. But in the showdown, like something is spilled or something's knocked over, such that the entire scene is um, washed in green light, so that the, he looks like he's normally just sort of like topy, like like dead flesh, but he looks green. And it's like, it's clearly a Frankenstein illusion, but like, not to the book, because yeah. he's not green in the book, and not to the earliest movies, because the earliest movies are black and white, and not to the most recent movies, but just to an idea, a yeah. set of conceptions about that story. This is going to be very useful, this idea of Harry Potter as a culture text is going to be very useful when we talk about Carry On, mm-hmm. um, because the degree to which that is or is not an intertext, an adaptation, a fan fiction... Um, a rewrite of Harry Potter versus Rainbow Rowell's actual claims, which is that the story of the chosen one is now a genre that you can also write in, mm-hmm. which feel disingenuous to me, mm-hmm. but also also are alluding to so the way in which Harry Potter has a unique cultural status or not unique because you've just, we have just pointed out other things that have that same cultural status, but yeah, has this different, this different cultural status that lets it be, the the subject of an adaptation like this, which, as you say, is not really an adaptation at all, but is this different kind of creature. It's time to move on to The Quibbler, which is going to be our discussion of transmedia storytelling. We talked about this as a stage adaptation, but really, we also need to talk about it as a viral video in the early days of viral videos, because as far as I can tell, 
This was performed that one time and recorded. And the thing that's made it a cultural phenomenon is the fact that, like, it was recorded and put up on YouTube and everybody could watch it. And millions of people did, which, as Neil pointed out, is bananas because it is three hours long. <laughs> I There was an interesting moment where I was watching it yesterday and i i had no idea of that (laughs) and now i'm a ghost (laughs) no i was watching yesterday and i had this moment where i was sort of i would notice something about the performance and then suddenly it hit me where i thought oh my god i hope that marcel and hannah are watching a copy of the same performance because what if i make reference to something that that someone did or some little detail and it literally wasn't in the version that you watched so i found it really interesting uh hannah when you were saying that as far as you can tell it, it's only we're we're all watching the same the exact same performance yeah. not just a kind of fixed text but a fixed performance that's yeah. so strange related to theatricality yeah. right i mean that's one of the major features of the theater is that is not the same all the time so I have been doing some rereading of some uh, key texts about the rise of American mass media in the early 20th century, particularly Richard Oman's excellent book, which I believe is called Selling Cultures. Um, and he breaks down like 10 key characteristics of mass culture. Um, and he talks about the way the sort of mechanisms that allow mass culture to emerge in the moment that it did. And part of that is, you know, in the context of the U.S. where um, we don't have or they don't have like a shared church. And so the sort of shared touch point of religion is, is not so much present, but mass culture relies on media that can produce a sense of simultaneity through both being produced very rapidly and being disseminated to really sizable populations. So you need a large urban population, you need lots of people crowded into the same space, and you need technologies of reproduction that can be reproduced sort of cheaply and quickly. So he's looking at magazines, like the books about magazines and the rise of mass magazines in the 1890s, but he points towards radio, um, to the rise of cheap paperbacks in that period, eventually to film, right? And these are all sort of emergent mass media And he differentiates mass media and its experience of simultaneity and its huge audiences from the previous main form of entertainment, which was the traveling show. Um, Because the traveling show can only be in one place at a time. And it might become a shared experience, but there's a cap on how many people can consume it at the same time. And it's fundamentally non-simultaneous. So the the magazine or the radio drama as replacing the sort of traveling show. And that's really interesting for me in the context of this, thinking about this event that is actually about non-simultaneity, right? The uniqueness of the theater, the sort of, which we talked about in the episode about the cursed child, that sense of like, I can see this and not everybody can. And the, the how fraught that felt to me in an age of digital media when simultaneity feels like, a democratic impulse. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that, you know, this was a, a unique cultural moment then recorded in a way that means that we can experience it with this sense of simultaneity. Um, and that like virality 
is like the extreme example of mass media and the experience of the simultaneous, right? The way that we can all experience something at the same time at a scale we've never had before and then all lose interest in it simultaneously as well, which is, you know, often how viral videos work. I was just going to ask, do you, because you hinted that you did any research at all, which I didn't, do we know anything about the circumstances of this particular performance? I mean, are are they people who are from there? Was it a touring performance at all? Is this the only time it's ever been performed in its entirety? And I mean, was it performed... Yeah, I, I have a lot of questions about the circumstances of this performance. I don't know. I don't know if you have answers. Speculate. I, I mean, I, I, I glanced at some stuff. Um, I usually, I usually don't do research, but I was dying last night. I was. That's me being in trouble. I think it was performed at a university. Um, I think it was just performed this one time. I think it was like a the- like a bunch of theater kids. That's what Marcel pointed out at one point that like it's obviously all their friends in the audience which is why they're laughing all the time at things that are not funny but the joke is my friend's on stage and they're wearing a silly wig but uh I just want to nod towards the fact that it is called like the production team which then went on to produce two more of these um there's a very Potter sequel and then there's a very Potter senior year or something like that yeah there's two more um they're called star kid productions and that is one of the epithets that uh Malfoy hurls at Harry when Harry talks about going to pig farts. Now you're just being cute. I can't go to pig farts. It's on Mars. You need a rocket ship. Do you have a rocket ship, Potter? Yes, you do. Look at this. That scene, that was one of the scenes I thought was funny. Almost every scene that Malfoy was in, I enjoyed. Yeah. Watching this really put me in mind of um, the complete works of William Shakespeare, which I don't know if either of you have seen it, but so like that's a that's a theatrical production mm-hmm. that you can like buy the rights to and perform. But there is a um, licensed, I think. I want to say it's the Royal Shakespeare Company. I'm not positive, but it is like an official professional theater company who who performed it and filmed it. And so that is available for like, I remember getting it from the McGill Library when I was there. But I also know that Trevor's, our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chaffraser. Hi, how are you doing? His younger brother um, performed it in school. So, so yeah, so there's like a kind of official version that you can see by professionals, and then you can also do it as like a high school production. Um, and it is incredibly funny. It is like tears streaming down your face, hilarious. Um, and the version that I'm referring to is the one that I borrowed from the library because I was never able to see Trevor's brother's high school performance, for example. And so when I was watching this, I was I was thinking about how I don't actually know really what my goal is with this statement so much as like, maybe I'm thinking in terms of genre. And so I should have brought this up in the last segment, but thinking in terms of like the official quote unquote, the scare quotes, official version that you can see of something that is itself a like pastiche 
of a whole bunch of other things. And then the availability of that thing for reproduction and how the thing that we are watching with a very Potter musical is the scare quotes official production, but that it might be that they have a script somewhere. Surely they have a script because they all had their lines memorized. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just improvised the whole way through. It doesn't seem like it was improvised the whole way through, but it might've been. And so like, if, it wasn't a liability. They could like license that and have people also perform this kind of thing. Um, and that this is like the official version, but then other people mm-hmm. anyway, whatever. But then Neil, I think I, I was thinking of this because you brought up the fact that you didn't even know if we were watching the the exact same thing because it is filmed and then uploaded. There might be pieces missing. Like we, we very early on had to switch the versions we were watching because with the sound quality being, um, you know, low budget, that it was really hard to hear a lot of the time. And also I didn't want to wake up the, the baby. And so we, we ended up switching to a version that had captions um, oh. so that we wouldn't miss a lot of the jokes. And that I was really relieved that we did that because I felt like I had a sense of what was going on. Whereas the first 10 minutes, I was like, I don't know what the fuck this is. <laughs> I can't hear anything except for some racist music. I don't know. And she was like, I do know what the fuck this is. And it's still racist and I'm still mad. I'm more mad. More mad than I was. <laughs> That's so interesting, though, because that means the two of you partially read this play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> We're blowing the lid off of this. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, I, I also think that's interesting because I had forgotten that um, there is a copyright regime that exists. Um, temporarily forgotten that there's a, I temporarily forgotten that there's a legal structure in which, in which art occurs. Um, but that's interesting because it suggests that a viral video is actually in some ways, one of the only ways that this text could exist because it wouldn't be mass media if it was just a touring production, but it also couldn't be a published script or a licensed script even more so. So it seems it just seems very appropriate that it would be a, a viral video of some kind. I was looking up who on Twitter had recommended that we watch this so I could feel mad at them in my heart. <laughs> you know who you are. But somebody, one of the, the tweets in which somebody had mentioned it to us was in the context of Rowling clearly making the decision to not pursue mm-hmm. pressing charges against people who were infringing her intellectual property, mm-hmm. um, including not exerting her moral right Right, which is the idea that that even if you've given up your intellectual rights to something, you can still claim your moral rights, which is you've used this in a way that I feel is at odds with the the spirit of the thing or that that debases it in some way. Um I do kind of feel like she would have been in her rights to say, like, this is racist. But uh yeah, so this is like clearly a sign that like at least as of two thousand and nine, um Rowling had made the decision to not um, to not crack down on people using her IP in these ways, um, which I think we can talk about more when we get to this final segment, which is about fandom, because mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting to talk about in terms of the Harry Potter fandom and its its chronological overlap with the rise of Web 2.0. But mm-hmm. we will get to that later on. Super rancorous. So <laughs> We're professional. Which is funny. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's because we all agree, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. There would be more rancor if anybody was like, 
trying to prove to you that that wasn't actually a racist scene. I think you're misreading that scene, Marcel. I think it was actually super funny to use that music because it was like, you assume that somebody named Cho Chang is Asian. And then it's like, what? No, of course, the most beautiful girl at school is white. Don't be silly. So they already made that joke in the world. That was when Seinfeld dated Donna Chang. Not Seinfeld. Did Jerry date her? Somebody dated a woman named Donna Chang, and the joke was that she was white, and everybody thought she was Chinese on hearing her name, and so they all, like, did racist things like take her advice, assuming that she was a wise Chinese woman and she was a regular blonde white lady, and then people were mad that she always introduces herself as Donna Chang, therefore, like, leaning hard on people's expectations that she will be Chinese when, in fact, she is not. So, like, that joke has been made and made much better. I feel like that's the opposite joke, though. <laughs> like, that's the exact inverse of that joke of saying, oh, it's super Orientalist. No, but you're the racist. Yeah, you know what? That's great. This just very handily. This is exactly what we were going to talk about. So uh, welcome to the segment. We've just started talking about it, so we're just going to keep talking about it. This is uh, Double Double Meta Trouble. This is our brand new section on intertextuality and referentiality beyond the world of Harry Potter and including other what we will call culture texts. So there's like the Seinfeld baseline that introduces every Ron coming into the scene thing that I was like, why is that happening? But now I'm actually wondering like this. So this is 2009. So the people performing this all would have grown up on Seinfeld at least I'm assuming they're like, if they're in undergrad, they're like a couple years younger than, than we were. Um, or maybe exactly Neil's age. Who knows? Who knows how old Neil is? I don't know. Um, (laughs) but like, (laughs) there's literally no way to find out. I know we don't do research, but this is pretty extreme. (laughs) It's unknowable. Neil, how old are you? I'm three. Yeah. See, so they're all Neil's age. Yep. Um, Neil, did you grow up watching Seinfeld? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. I remember it being, like, in high school, the theater kids in particular were real into Seinfeld. It was, like, a way of signifying that you, like, had a particular edgy taste in humor. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So I am going to speculate that the Cho Chang joke draws on the Donna Chang joke Mm -hmm. from Seinfeld. Given that they very overtly reference Seinfeld um, mm-hmm. in in a variety of ways in the production, that that is my guess where mm-hmm. that comes from. You all know how I feel about the Cho Chang joke, so yeah. I'm just going to leave it there. Anyway, who does anybody want to actually explain what the segment is? Because I'm clearly too mad. I actually just want to reference the other really offensive joke that happens really early on, which I'm mad about also because I watched a short video that was like the funniest moments in a very Potter musical and the Cho Chang moment was in it. And this moment was also in it, which is when, uh, quirl, quirl, you're welcome for that sound quality. Uh, when Quirrell first shows up and is wearing the turban and yeah. uh, Malfoy shouts, go home, terrorist. Yeah. And then you like, the camera moves over to Malfoy and he's like making this face like, what? Who said that? I didn't say that. And it's like, okay, the joke is Malfoy's a bad person. Except that Malfoy's not a bad person and is not presented as an unlikable character, is not a villain, is redeemed. Mm-hmm. So the joke actually is just that it's funny to shout at somebody who's wearing a turban. Mm -hmm. 
And let me give an example of that joke being made in exactly the opposite way, which is a Muslim woman who I follow on Twitter. Her name is Sarah. I can't remember her last name right now. But I actually just saw her tweet today. She was like, this is my number one most plagiarized joke. And she had retweeted her own joke, which is um, the reason that I am wearing a veil is because I have Voldemort on the back of my head. Yeah, it's the opposite joke, right? It's the, like, literally the opposite joke. And it's funny when it's literally the opposite joke. But this version of the joke is stupid and shitty. But a reference to, like, in 2009, a reference to hating terrorists does seem to be being thrown around like a Seinfeld joke, like a sort of part of this larger cultural text of, like, what are things that everybody in this room will get? Um, They'll get, like that it's funny and easy to signify that that's a bad character by making them hate somebody wearing a turban. Um, And they'll get what that funny little riff means when Ron walks in. And those are sort of part of the same, like we have this vocabulary of things that we all know about and can all laugh at. And that like at moments that was really effective for me. And at other moments it was very poorly done. The Just your description of that, turban joke reminded me that the the reason that I that I was speaking about the idea that the humor I feel is kind of mean-spirited and I think the kind of framework that it fell into for me is actually the way that uh Seth MacFarlane has defended humor on Family Guy mm-hmm. specifically mm-hmm. by saying that the premise of Family Guy is that many of the characters are terrible people so when they say terrible things the humor is that you laugh at them and how terrible they are. And my problem with that, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of possible problems with that, but my problem with that is that the second part of that equation is just imaginary. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. you, you're just imagining that that's what happens. And I mean, I guess if you want to be generous, you can say that that the person who wrote that joke meant that to be the case, yeah. but I, I, I find it to be really irresponsible basically. And the reason that I say mean spirited is because if you, don't know the people who are in this stage production, if you don't have a context for it, I think it is easy to have the opposite experience and think this isn't being made from a sort of good natured place or these jokes aren't coming across as that way. And again, that's making the huge assumption that they were meant to in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I just think, I think it's a really dangerous and bad idea to be, to leave that door open when you're making jokes about those particular things. So that just reminded me of the idea that, you know, Draco is a bad person, right? So jokes that he makes are not jokes that you're meant to agree with. But how do you know that? Right? I I don't think that's at all obvious or sanctioned by the text. And I think it's hard to do that also. So a show that I think really from that same period that does a really good job of the, like, foul character who says terrible things and the joke is that they're bad is... Arrested Development, right? Which is a family of monstrous people. But what that show does successfully is it has, I hope I'm using this word right, interlocutors who like indicate to you, the audience, actually, and I think um, Parks and Rec follows up on this really nicely too, where you have people who fill the role of being like, well, that was a terrible thing to say, or that was a ridiculous thing to say, or that was an offensive thing to say. Um, and so like, if you were going to take the position of these people say these things in order to demonstrate that they are bad and we laugh at them for being bad, you need to very clearly indicate how that joke is supposed to be played out. Right. I can imagine being a person who is watching this production and is 
a person who lives in the world and experiences the kinds of violence in the world that are being mocked. Um, so like we'll go to Ginny Weasley, for example, being like a stupid girl or whatever. And like the joke, I don't get the joke. I don't get what is funny about being a stupid girl that I don't, I don't get it. It's not, it is lost on me. I don't feel included in the joke. I don't feel like the joke is that Ron is an asshole. I feel like when I watch it, I feel like the joke is women are stupid and women who have feelings for people are stupid. How about, I mean, I had exactly that experience because one of the recurring jokes is that Hermione is fat. Yeah. And it's supposed to be funny because Hermione is obviously not fat and being fat is funny. And the idea that she would be popular and attractive to several characters and fat is hilarious. And that like watching that as a fat person, it's like, guys, this isn't funny. It's just a bummer. Like, and this is a conversation Marcella and I had last night. Um, Being an ironic asshole is exactly the same as being an asshole. Like in the real world, if you ironically say terrible things about people who already experience lots of like having those terrible things said to them, they're not like, ah, but I hear that you are saying that terrible thing with irony. Now, now I get it. It's like, no, it's the same thing. It's the same bad thing. And that's what, you know, something like the family guy is. It's like, no, you are making the same racist and sexist jokes. You're just like winking while you say them? No, fuck you and your wink. Yeah. Oh, no, now I got that. Yeah, and I, I also think the the defense that you didn't mean it to be sincere is basically just saying that you're shitty at this, <laughs> too, right? Like, yeah. if people yeah. listen to your humor and they can't tell if you meant it ironically, or not, like, you, you're bad at this. Yeah. I do believe that there's a way, like Marcel is alluding to this, the way that Arrested Development does this, and other shows do this, too. Like, I think it's possible to use bad jokes and bad humor for the purposes of humor, but I don't think the way to do that is to just make those jokes and then tell people that it was ironic and then just, you know, wink. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That doesn't doesn't say anything and you're just doing it badly yeah it is a general principle of humor that if you need to explain your joke (laughs) it's not funny or if you need to explain your joke it is lost on the people to whom you told it so you you did a bad job your joke is bad the the thing that i sometimes think of is the you know classic punchline of and i think this actually happens on family guy a lot where it's like it's like, no, but seriously, can you imagine, you know, as though as though someone would be that horrible? And I think for a lot of people, the answer is yes, actually. It's completely imaginable that yeah. someone would say those things completely yeah. sincerely. Yeah. So, like, back to the drawing board. Yeah. Just don't <laughs> make it. the joke Try this it. way. I wonder, so, like, we're talking about this particular era, right? We're talking about the, like, post-George W. Bush era where it's, like, Obama 2008, people, I think, had a lot of expectations and understandings of the world that it was a better place and that maybe it was like an okay time to be ironically shitty because we all know that the world is better because we have a black president now. And now we are looking back on this time in the age of Donald Trump as the as the following US president where whatever gains were made under Barack Obama were so offensive to the people who rallied behind Donald Trump that they elected Donald Trump. Like, like we are looking, we we just like live in it. We talk about yeah. this a lot. We like live 
in an in an era where everything just feels more violent and charged and threatening and dangerous. And maybe like maybe this production really is of its time. Maybe people really thought that the world was a better place than it than it is. I yeah, I don't know. I'm not excusing it. I'm I'm pondering if like it has not aged well. Well, I did just realize that that micro punchline that I was just explaining of the, you know, no, but seriously, can you imagine? Mm-hmm. Like that is predicated on a kind of progressivist assumption mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. enough has happened that it is now preposterous to imagine that someone would behave in such a manner, which is so situated in a particular kind of culture at a particular time. And I I agree with you. I think now it's hard to think that way because I think even the most kind of clueless person who is progressive is having a difficult time with the idea that it's just inevitable that everything gets better over time. It's really hard and untenable to think that way now. Can I segue us to sort of a conversation about more generally the location of this in its moment and in its cultural moment and the sort of really interesting way that like some of the jokes feel so dated. Um, but one of the things that I, that I liked about what was happening was the sort of the experience of absurdism of pop culture references in the Harry Potter world. The why is it so funny that everybody's a fan of Zac Efron? <laughs> oh my God. That is a boss Zephron poster. <laughs> just the greatest. You know, in every interview I've ever seen him, he just seems like such a charismatic uh, humanitarian. <laughs> you think you like him? Wrong, because I love him the most. Harry Potter loves Zach Efron more than anybody else on the planet. Well, well part of what's so funny is that Rowling has very deliberately elided all um, sort of muggle culture mm-hmm. references out of Harry Potter. I think in a move that's quite smart because it makes it feel timeless. And so it's going to age very well. If it's like the wizarding world is just chronologically out of sync with the muggle world. And so, and there will be no references in the few moments we're in the muggle world. We'll just have no references to pop culture. And so the series is going to sort of reside in this timeless space outside of contemporaneity. And there's, you know, people have theorized why it's hard in literature to make references to like contemporary um, media and technology and mm-hmm. and why that feels weird sometimes. But one of my favorite genres of fan art is people who draw the Harry Potter characters in early 90s clothes mm-hmm. because they're at Hogwarts in the early 90s. So like, what would they be wearing? I'm like, there's like a great Photoshop where somebody's just Photoshopped the heads of the actors from the movies onto the 90210 kids. Yeah. It's just, it's delightful to me to actually place Harry Potter back yeah. into like, a world that's saturated with all of the other media. And so the idea of like relocating these characters in a world where like they've watched movies where like Voldemort keeps catching she's all that on TV and so has never seen the beginning. Like that's an amazing It's one of my favorite jokes. It's amazing. Like and Neil described it as amazingly specific. Or like the like the the moment where I can't remember who's singing, it might have been Ron who starts singing, we're all in this together, which is the song from High School Musical, which was Zac Efron's claim to fame. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't actually know who Zac Efron yeah. is, and so I don't, I like a lot of those jokes were lost, but it was funny that yeah. they liked Zac Efron. Yeah. yeah. And it was also delightful to see, like, the jokes that I, that I laughed out loud at were... Um, little cultural illusions like one of the Death Eaters, like hearing somebody speak, but they're under the invisibility cloak and saying maybe it's the Predator. 
And like, that's funny to me because the idea that the Death Eaters have watched Predator at some point is funny. The idea of these characters who we've seen in this magical world also going home at the end of the day and watching an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, that is funny to me. And so is the idea that that Malfoy has made up like, yes, I know at the end it turns out to not be made up, but, like, he's made up this other wizarding school where he is clearly just drawn together various intertexts. Like, he's been reading too many fantasy novels and reading too many sci-fi novels and has drawn together these intertexts to make another even more magical school that he fantasizes about within his own magical school. And that that magical school is, like, a mashup of, like, C.S. Lewis and Heinlein and, like, like it's on Mars But also there's a talking magical lion and like Rumble Roar, Roar, right? The idea that kids at Hogwarts are reading fantasy novels and imagining things more magical than what they already have. Like, I like that all a lot. Um, I was just going to say that this is kind of, I guess, an addendum to something that I've been thinking about that I mentioned in previous episodes. But I realized at some point that one thing I really like about Luna, about Luna Lovegood, is that the other wizards treat her cosmology as though it were a ridiculous made up magical world (laughs) but they are wizards (laughs) and i realized at some point that one thing i like about luna is that she is she is the wizard of wizards Mm -hmm. right like amongst wizards she is a wizard so yeah that strange kind of idea of just asking the obvious question of what what do wizards think is think about these kind of external other texts what even is narnia if you go to a magical school like do you wonder if it's real or do you indeed invent a school (laughs) yeah i mean that's like it that's a great point about luna because like where does everybody else get off being like that's absurd it's like uh everything about where you live is absurd (laughs) come on um aspects of the intertextuality were probably what worked the best for me, like Malfoy, yes. Um, pop culture references, yes. Almost everything else, thank you, but no. I dare say no, thank you. Okay. <laughs> What's the inside of your mug, sir? Hannah made me a really beautiful mug of the uh, unicorn from The Last Unicorn, Breathing Fire. And the inside says, no. And the handle says, burn it down. It's a burnicorn. It's beautiful. It's the most beautiful mug I've ever owned. It's time for Witch Weekly's Most Charming Smile Award, a segment about fandom. (laughs) Where we award the Most Charming Smile Award, which I have. I find it weird how much I relate to Lockhart, but let's not talk about it. Talk I about see, it, see a lot of myself in that uh, that weird, faintly unethical dude. <laughs> yeah, it's not faintly, you're right. <laughs> well, I mean, he turns it. Let's not talk about this. Okay. Yeah, Neil, you are just, like, constantly stealing other people's research. <laughs> and essentially attempting to, like, drug children. Like, let's... Hmm. Well, when you put it that way... <laughs> man i talk about myself a lot yeah so we're gonna talk about fandom now and and why people like it we're gonna speculate i don't know (laughs) so i um was on the cbc a whole bunch uh about a month ago 
at three in the morning. Mm. It was three a.m. They did three a.m. CBC interviews to honor the the twentieth uh, anniversary of the publication of the first Harry Potter book, and um, it was a very odd experience. P.S. They like really, really wanted to frame me as a fan, not as a scholar. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I attempted to make a scholarly point, the interviewers were like, "But how do you feel about Harry Potter?" And I was like, "Listen." My feelings are not of your affair. And also a CBC reporter attempted to make fun of me for, uh, like, being into Harry Potter. And I was like, mm, you don't get to call me a nerd. You're a CBC reporter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just to be clear. Yeah, it was odd. But one of the points that I tried to make on the first couple of interviews before it became clear that nobody was interested in this point, and so I just let it go, was that the... Uh, exemplary cultural status of Harry Potter is not merely because the books are interesting, remarkable, engaging texts, but also because of the historical moment in which they emerged. I'm not the first person to make this point, but, you know, the first Harry Potter book came out in 1997, just at the beginning of Web 2.0, when people were starting to get this new technology in their homes that allowed them to do things like gather with other people who they did not know IRL and um, connect over a shared fondness for something um, and do things like share fan fiction that they'd written, share fan art that they had drawn, um, have in-depth conversations about the minutia of this world. And I, I know for a lot of people, their first experience of the internet was being on or in a fandom of some variety. Mm-hmm. Um, my first big internet thing was being on a reboot forum. I come from the net, through systems, peoples, and cities, to this place, mainframe. My format, guardian, to mend and defend, to defend my newfound friends, their hopes and dreams, to defend them from their enemies. I was real into, I was just real into reboot. But like Harry Potter, part of why it became the thing that it is, is that people started, the fandom started online as the books were being published and people were writing fan fiction along with the books coming out. And so when the books came out, people could then debate what actually happened in the canon text versus how they'd imagined things and how relationships did or did not play out. I think that's part of why people were so mad that Harry ended up with Jenny because they had imagined things differently because they were playing it out and writing it out themselves as the series unfolded. And so there is something about this, this weird piece of cultural production that feels really perfectly appropriate to the Harry Potter series, which is what a lot of forms of digital fandom were being tested out on. And a lot of what makes Harry Potter the cultural phenomenon it is, is because people had these forums for doing things with it online. And so like, as much as this is like, not my cup of tea, it is, it is certainly interesting just that it exists and that it exists with the kind of popularity that it does. This is backtracking, but I would just like to shout out Liz from The Edge who decided to steal the idea of interviewing one of us from the CBC and called me and we talked on the phone and was like super willing to talk about scholarly stuff and actually ask me about what it means to read this text from a feminist lens. So like the CBC could learn a lot 
from Liz on the edge. Thanks, Liz. So my first thing on the internet was collecting pictures of Our Lady Peace in order to put together a fan website for Our Lady Peace, and I never, I never completed that task. Uh, my first internet fan thing was probably reading a lot of uh, Sonic the Hedgehog fanfic, actually. Wow. Yeah. A lot of web rings. You guys remember web rings? No, please explain what they are. Well, the, the, the internet, Web 1.0 used to have a structure where web pages would be linked to each other in sequence. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there'd be like a GeoCities, like a Sonic the Hedgehog fanfic web ring where you'd click next page and it would be someone totally different's That's page. Right. That's right. Right. So there, there used to be us. There used to be these parts of the internet that were constructed in circles. I really think of that as being a huge Web 1.0 thing that the internet yeah. used to have this very non-modular structure. Yeah. yeah. No, but Sonic the Hedgehog fanfic, which uh, this is what you would think. No, because in my head it's very erotic. Was it erotic, Neil? Yeah, I think. I mean, that wasn't so much what I was into, but I think that's the overwhelming amount of it. Yeah. So many Neil revelations. (laughs) Again, not my cup of tea, but that is what it primarily consisted of. Neil, you would have been what, like eight? Way too too young young for erotic Sonic the Hedgehog fanfic. Fandom. God, I'm so distracted now by this <laughs> Sonic the Hedgehog slash yeah, fic, I'm assuming. Head, right? Yeah, yeah. <gasps> <Give it's... me laughs> decades. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> so fandoms. So uh there is this very probably some of you are already familiar with this, but there is this very interesting concept called convergence culture. Well, and convergence uh Henry Oh, I'm going to say Henry Jenkins, but this might be um, a Neil-esque made-up <laughs> name for someone whose name I don't remember. It doesn't, it doesn't sound quite right. But yeah, so convergence culture is the idea of a um, cultural object where multiple different media can converge on it, allowing people to have um, sort of transmedia relationships to that culture. And so convergence culture is a function of our sort of contemporary media-saturated environment in a lot of ways, Um, though you can sort of look back and see forms of convergence culture that predate this one now, this here, this now, the now, yeah, no, the 21st century. So, like, an example of convergence culture is how, um, like, you know, a fandom that I'm quite engaged in is for a podcast called My Brother, My Brother and Me, which is released as a podcast but then they're all on Twitter. So you can follow them on Twitter and engage with them there. And a regular segment on their podcast is that listeners find funny questions on Yahoo Answers, which they then submit to them 
So there's Yahoo Answers is another platform that's being drawn on. And they're also on Facebook. And they're also people make fan videos out of their podcast. And then they do live stage performances that then get recorded as podcasts and put back on the internet. And so this way that there's all of these different venues available for simultaneously engaging across different media forms and genres with the thing that you're really into. And so it can sort of saturate your life um, in a way that like hypothetically, you know, people couldn't engage in these kinds of ways with media when we didn't have digital media and that you can sort of talk back to creators and have some impact on and be, yourself become a creator who becomes part of this fandom community. Is it does it differ from transmedia in that it's fan generated and not like an like official um production channels, yeah. official channels. Yeah, right. So like um transmedia storytelling, you can think about it as like Star Wars is is transmedia, yeah. right? You've got like the movies, but you also have the books, and then presumably you have like television spinoff series, like oh the God. droids and comics. Yeah. Like all of these different platforms tell different stories that exist in the same universe, and yeah. and and yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Whereas you know, convergence culture is like lots and lots of different people are creating and engaging with things on lots of different platforms simultaneously, and. I don't think, like, I'm not sure how I would draw the Venn diagram or relationship between transmedia storytelling and convergence culture, but I'd say they're not, like, they're not the same thing, but they're also not, like, completely different things. Like, they're definitely sort of a lot of messy overlap and bleed through between those things. Um, yeah, so what we're seeing here is a sort of, I think, an example of both. Both of a sort of story being told in a different medium, which is, like, the viral video, which is not the medium that any official Harry Potter stories have been told in and so a sort of you know transmedia dimension to it as well as the sort of convergence culture piece which is like so in the midst of the production of the harry potter canon we've got this capacity for fans to produce their own um product and sort of put it into the world and have it also become part of the the texts of the fandom such that now when we are talking about harry potter a ton of our listeners tell us that we need to watch this thing, right? right. That it's considered to be part of the world of Harry Potter that you must engage with as a fan. Much like we've been told a number of times to read a couple of sort of quote-unquote canonical or particularly popular works of fan fiction, which um, I've got to say after watching this, I'm not trusting your recommendations, folks. <laughs> Any thoughts on fandom, Neil? Well, one question that I had while watching this, and I really sincerely, like, I, I, I liked your phrase, Hannah, like, this, this is not my cup of tea. It's not, it's not really doing it for me. Like, there, there's a lot of funny things in it, etc. But, you know, there's things that aren't, and I have our time looking past it, and it's really long. It's really long. Um, but while I was watching it, and I really don't mean this disdainfully or to suggest that this is a rhetorical question at all, I was genuinely wondering, like, what is it that the fans of this musical like what do they appreciate it for and i really i don't think that's an unanswerable question and in some ways it's kind of a shame that the three of us are on the same page about this because it, it would be interesting to hear what yeah. people say i imagine that twitter will roast us for this but I'm, I'm genuinely curious like what is it that people like i mean one thing that we haven't talked about at all is actually the songs in this musical. Like, do people just like the songs? Because one thing that I found strange about the songs is that sometimes they're oddly sincere. 
and feel the glares of my cousin, my uncle and my aunt. I can't believe how cruel they are, and it stings my lightning scar to know they'll never, ever give me what I want. I know I don't deserve these stupid rules made by the Dursleys here on Take all of these muggles, but despite all of my struggles, I'm right, still they're, they're just kind of sincere, and the humor in that moment seems to just be the idea of a Harry Potter musical, rather than this is a silly song. And then some of the songs are just deeply silly, right? So I, I guess I don't know this fandom well enough, but I'm fascinated by the idea that the musical itself has a fandom attached to it. So it's not as though it's a dead end and people who are fans of Harry Potter, they also, there's also this musical. There's also fans of this musical. And I'm, just, I'm really curious about that. I'm really curious about what that fandom is like. I think I have a pretty good sense of what Harry Potter fandom is like or you know, Sonic the Hedgehog fandom, but I don't really know what sub-fandom? I don't know if the, yeah. what the vocabulary is for this, but I'm genuinely curious about it since it's not really my thing. Yeah, I mean, speaking of convergence culture, this would be a really great opportunity for those of you, if you didn't take our advice and did listen to this episode <laughs> and also like a Harry Potter musical, or maybe like it but are also like amenable to the critiques of it, because I know some people on Twitter were like, I can't wait to hear you talk about it because it's so problematic and I know you're going to tear it apart, so like... Some, yeah, yeah, oh <laughs> yeah, no, some people are like, like, love it, but are deeply aware of the issues. Um, yeah, uh, no, our listeners are very smart. Well, that's why I was so confused. Yeah. Also, like, when someone loves something and you tell them it's problematic, that person always hears it as you telling yeah. them that they're a bad person for yeah. liking it. And it's really not, not yeah. at all where yeah. this podcast is yeah. coming from yeah. at all. Yeah. No, yeah, so I would really like to know sort of what register this is meaningful for people. So, like, is it the songs? You know, do you go back and listen to the song? Like, it opens with this quite beautiful song of, like, Harry sitting alone singing this song about how lonely he is with the Dursleys and how excited he is to go back to Hogwarts. And I know that's a lot of people's favorite song. And, um, you know, so is it is it the music? Um, the music didn't strike me. I like musical theater a lot. Um, these songs all felt very... Like, none of them really sort of caught me. But, uh, you know, like, the idea of having songs about a thing that you really love, I totally get that. Like, I re-listened to the Steven Universe soundtrack album a lot. And those songs don't stand alone. Those songs only work as part of this series. So, yeah. Or are there other pieces of it that are really, you know, meaningful to you? Like, yeah, I would really be interested in knowing, yeah, what this what this piece of fandom, of fan production means to people. I pitched for the Edmonton Comic and Entertainment Expo a panel that Neil and I would do where we would look at fan this I pitched this before seeing this this production. I pitched it with the the question are fans better at making Harry Potter movies than the movie studio? And now if they accept it, I truly don't know what we would talk about. <laughs> Hopefully Voldemort at the Origins of the Air will be out by then. That looks very exciting. Yeah. Also, if there are some other videos um, that people think Marcel should look at for that panel. 
then Neil, but then they think Neil should look out for that panel and then describe to Nar- Marcel. Narcel. That's your that's your couple name. Um Mariel. Sorry. What? We're done. The end. Any final thoughts, folks? Nope. Great. Fuck it. Okay, so we haven't just gone and listened to a recording from one one of us. We've just finished listening to our heated conversation about a very Potter musical. Oh with yeah, Neil Barnhold and two weeks ago. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you entirely blocked it out of your head, didn't you? I knew that we had a. I knew that we had a delightful conversation with Neil. <laughs> yeah, I definitely. I definitely recycled that bit of my inbox. That's great. You know, yeah. hanging out with Neil is like going on a bender. You never remember the specifics. You just had a general <laughs> feeling that you had a good time. <laughs> but you also don't like hate yourself the next morning. Yeah, it's like the best kind of bender. The I highly bender. recommend replacing any of your damaging addictions with hanging out with Neil instead. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. And like the other thing is at least in, you know, the limited experience that you and I have with him uh, and our addictions that may or may not be damaging, is that Neil's super non-judgmental about them. It's the best. Like, not once has he ever been like, you guys are drinking a lot during this movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, we very rarely have to say, you don't know Neil. Not never, but rarely. <laughs> it's often in, it's often sarcastically barked at him. <laughs> You don't know me, Neil. <laughs> you don't know my life. <laughs> oh, okay. In conclusion, everybody get a Neil. <laughs> okay, on that note, you know what mm-hmm. time it is? What time is it? It's time for the Tri Witches Tournament! Woo! That was some high-quality chutzpah, Hannah. Thank you. So, this fortnight, <laughs> I almost said, I wish there was a word for two weeks. Hannah. There, I know it's like in our tagline. Hannah. This fortnight, we challenge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this fortnight, we challenge you to treat yourself. Treat Yourself 2017. Many of you did an absolutely incredible job. It was really wonderful to see the ways in which you were treating yourselves show up in our Twitter feed. Um, Mm -hmm. As usual, we're just going to highlight a couple of people who give a good sense of the the range and glory of the things that you did. Marcel, do you have them in front of you? Heck no. (laughs) Great. I'm going to read them. Um, the first one is Emily McDonald or at Emily Mac O2, who said, not cut up on Eps. This week, Try Witches is about treating oneself. Great reading of context clues. Mm-hmm. And then said, poutine post years of struggle with an eating disorder, a huge treat. And then posted a gorgeous picture of poutine. Shout out to you. Poutine is an amazing treat. Yes. I can only eat vegan poutine, which is consistently disappointing. But... I'm so proud of you for eating poutine. 
Yeah, yeah. Poutine, I think I think we can agree that poutine in any form, whatever form you can get poutine, you deserve that poutine. Yeah. It would be great if it was, you know, perfect and delicious every time. Sometimes poutines are disappointing, but no. just like so good on you for eating that poutine. And from this picture, I can tell this poutine was not disappointing. It that looked was delicious. Some, that was some prime poutine. That was like real cheese curds poutine. None it of this grated really cheddar bullshit. Yeah. Sorry. So sorry, Marcel. Go get poutine for lunch. <laughs> there is actually a Quebec style poutine place, poutinery, if you will, on will. the way on the way to campus. So maybe I will get myself a vegetarian poutine. And they do vegan poutine and their gravy is gluten free. Next up, Natasha Fagelman at Fagel Mouse uh, tweeted one of several beautiful fashion treat yourselves. I love mm-hmm. fashion treat yourselves. It is you mm-hmm. can always go to a thrift store and very inexpensively buy yourself something absurd and amazing. Mm-hmm. They said just bought a jumper with lobsters on. It's from the men's section. Parentheses eye roll emoji, uh, and it's <laughs> so fluffy and it looks really really incredible. <laughs> I really want to own something with lobsters on it now. Uh, Elliot has a swimsuit with lobsters on it, so I'll just send it to you when he's done with it. i love that swimsuit and i feel like maybe my cat would fit in it (gasps) please put out please cut a little hole for alperty's tail and put him in this lobster suit you would never love me again but he'll need it when the floods come that's true the floods are coming (laughs) (laughs) okay do you want to tell the people about their new challenge yes i do hannah but before i do i want to give a shout out to your excellent emoji choice for this treat yourself retweeting it was delightful very delicious very beautiful they were all treats and they were all great treats Mm. so when hannah and i were talking about what to do for this coming fortnight's try which is challenge we were remarking on how it seems as though many of you find it easier to do things for others than to do things for yourself and so we thought that this would be a good opportunity to encourage you to do more for yourself because we are many of us very good at taking care of others and we tend to put our own self-care activities on the back burner so hannah remembered an instagram feed that our friend karina soros put her onto and that instagram feed has a series of illustrations about boring Mm self-care um hannah do you remember the name of that person so if anybody wants to follow them they can follow them the instagram account is called make daisy chains oh the artist is named hannah daisy um surprise it's just me uh, and she has this series of illustrations that are boring self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's things like got out of bed before noon, coped with revision and exams, wore day clothes in the day and night clothes in the night, cooked and ate a nourishing meal, got an eye test. Great mm-hmm. job, Marcel. You've already yes. done it. You know what? There is very little in my life that I've done that is more disgusting than have freezing drops put in my eyes. Sounds awful. It was so gross. Sounds really awful. It was the worst. Um, Went food shopping, went outside. Um, Go check out this Instagram feed. It's really, really wonderful. And there's so many great examples of boring acts of self-care. Yeah. And so what we want you to do this 
this fortnight is to do a boring act of self-care. You may even just copy one of the things from the Instagram feed. That's perfectly acceptable. Uh, And then tweet about it and we will celebrate you for your boring act of self-care. This week, I might floss. (laughs) I flossed last night. I felt so good about myself. Good for you. I'm going to, um, I'm going to stick with the dental theme and say that I'm going to make an appointment for a checkup. Great idea. Great job. 10 out of 10. Thank you. Good job, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Which place? Tell me. Great. Well, let's, yeah, let's, let's, (laughs) let's do, let's do which please tell me now. (laughs) Transitions. (laughs) Um, Do you have the question in front of you? No, but you should say, take it away, Todd. That is what I should say. Take it away, Todd. Which please, which please make it make sense to me? Because a muggle in me just wants to know. Oh, oh. Which please, which please make it make sense to me? Because a muggle in me just wants to know. So our which please tell me question this episode comes mm-hmm. from Radish Reads, uh, a.k.a. Amanda Chu, who asks... How do you think witches slash wizards manage their period? Magical tampons? Magical menstrual cups that never overflow? What do you think? Yeah, I have no idea. I love this question because we so rarely think about the actual, like, realities of menstruation in fantastic situations. Even, like, whenever I'm watching, like, I don't know, The Walking Dead or Game of Thrones or whatever. I'm just like, Mm -hmm. how do they deal with it? You know, the one example I have seen of like a sci-fi fantasy thing that actually lets you see menstruation was season one of Sense8, which is this Netflix series about these eight people who develop a psychic link where they can essentially like join minds or body swap. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's an amazing episode where one of the characters has her period and um, one of the other characters, a sort of cis male character on the other side of the world begins to experience menstruation symptoms um, and just starts um, like crying erratically. On He's an actor and he's just crying erratically on set and doesn't understand mm-hmm. why. It was just really beautiful. Mm-hmm. But it included a scene like in the bathroom where she is putting a tampon in, which like, I don't think I had seen that on TV before. I was just like, wow, like this is such a regular part of my life and the regular part of the lives of every person who menstruates and I never get to see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. I know. The only time we ever really see tampons and pads is when there are stupid commercials of like, skinny women riding horses and running through fields in white pants always in in white pants and for some reason like pads being coated with blue liquid yeah oh the blue liquid's amazing why why you like i really wish that we could go back in time and be a fly in the wall in that in that ad exec Mm -hmm. meeting where they were like so we want to show how much liquid it absorbs Mm -hmm. But it can't look like blood. Mm. That would gross out the viewers. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's exactly because... it. And what's the most <laughs> antiseptic looking fluid? Blue. Mm. Blue. So 
getting back to the world of uh, witches and wizards, do you mm-hmm. remember that like a little bit from um, some sort of paratext thing that J.K. Rowling wrote about how wizards didn't have modern plumbing for a long time and that they until like the 1850s, they would just like like poop where they, they were just standing vanish. and then vanish yeah. so like yeah if that's the case which like what the fuck if that's mm-hmm. the case you've got to imagine that until relatively recently menstruation was dealt with by people just bleeding freely and then like mm. using a spell to vanish it every once in a while yeah and like that unlike people just shitting wherever and then vanishing it I'm really into the idea of just free bleeding. Yeah, free bleeding's great. So I wonder, okay, so I wonder if we can apply the same rule to menstruation. I wonder if maybe around the advent of muggle world mass-produced menstruation Mm -hmm. things, suddenly there was a kind of imposition of muggle menstruation technologies Mm -hmm. on the wizarding world. Kind of like the sense that like, you know, depression doesn't exist until you have antidepressants. Menstruation as a concept mm-hmm. doesn't exist until you have menstrual products. Mm-hmm. And so prior to that point, it's just like people just like are, they just mm-hmm. like are in their bodies, their bodies do their things. And then all of a sudden they're like, you're, you, you're menstruating. Yeah, this is a problem. You need to use this menstrual I product. Mean, like that is, that matches human history, which is that like, the idea of menstruation as a hygiene issue was invented mm-hmm. to sell women newly invented hygiene products. Mm-hmm. So like but the same thing as um, deodorant. Like you have to mm-hmm. convince people that the way their bodies are is wrong if you want to sell them stuff that's going to alter their bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, so, and then if we're sort of going through that arc, it's like at some point, um, menstruating people in the wizarding world start using muggle technologies, but then there's got to be like, like there is now in the muggle world, like forms of resistance to that. And what I'm picturing as like the best solution is just like period underwear that are charmed, mm-hmm. right? Like period mm-hmm. underwear. I have not like stepped into that world yet, but I Mm-mm. love the premise um, mm-hmm. and those just being like charmed that you don't have to worry about them or, you know, you just being taught a charm from a, a young age to what's the, what is the sort of cleaning charm? Oh, scourgeify. Yeah. So maybe you like scourgeify your period underwear and, and move on. Mm-hmm. You know, so <laughs> something that also just occurred to me is that like the real world history of like like witchcraft and midwifery and that all had you know like herbs and tinctures and stuff to like treat the symptoms mm-hmm. of menstruation or to like bring it on if it is not showing up when you expect it to that kind of thing <laughs> wink oh wink yeah so it's it's also making me think that like I don't know. There's, like, already established within witchcraft lore that, like, witches are mm-hmm. good at, at dealing with periods. Like, mm-hmm. and not even yeah. dealing with yeah. it like a like a problem the way it's posed in modernity, but, like, managing it Living and being in it. tune yeah. with it and, and, like, embracing it as, as part of how your body works. And, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Like, I have a really hard time imagining, for example, that, like, 
they use magic to like try to eliminate menstruation. Mm-hmm. It would be really cool if there was a Hogwarts course or like a um, an apprenticeship program that you would do after Hogwarts that's akin to like you know like pre modern midwifery and witchcraft mm-hmm. where you would like learn about like the cycles of the body and like how to map your menstruation with like the moon Mm -hmm. or with your body's production of fluids that kind of thing i really like the idea of there being this like whole sort of chthonic stream at hogwarts Mm -hmm. that like we don't see because it is not what um our protagonists are interested in but um Mm-hmm. You can picture, for example, like, um, who are the, the two students who really love... Um, Professor Trelawney? Professor Trelawney. It's Lavender Brown uh, and... Parvati Patil. Parvati Patil. Like, mm-hmm. maybe what we're seeing of them in their relationship to Professor Trelawney is, like, only one part of this, like, whole other stream that they're doing at Hogwarts where they learn all kinds of yeah. other forms of magic that are much more about sort of being in tune with systems and like maybe they also go on adventures into the forbidden forest but they meet like like harpies and like other sort of chthonic feminine magic figures um Mm -hmm. and there's like Mm -hmm. all of this other shit going on at hogwarts that like we just don't see because there's like a particular form of magic that our protagonists are interested in that makes perfect sense to me because hermione like Hermione's parents are dentists, so she's probably one of those people who is like also not super interested in like the body as it uh, as a like leaky, mm-hmm. messy thing, yeah. and instead is has grown up in a space where like the body is a series of problems that need to be treated mm-hmm. and addressed, mm-hmm. and so she takes that same attitude into the magical world, and so has a lot of disdain for Professor Trelawney and the type of like intuitive look inside yourself what does your body tell you kind of magic Mm -hmm. i don't know yeah that's very exciting this this is why people like fan fiction so much it's really fun to imagine things differently great answered did it great wonderful thanks for the question what a great question Yeah, that was a great question thank you amanda which please which please make it make sense to me because the muggle in me just wants to know. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us yeah. for season two, episode five of Witch Please. Uh, the rest of our episodes Gosh. are, as always, available at awitchplease.ca. You can, of course, subscribe to us on your podcatcher of choice. We're on iTunes and Google Play. Oh, it's not called iTunes anymore. It's called Apple Podcasts and Google Play and, and all of those other things. <laughs> Couldn't make it up. And don't forget, as usual, we've got merch available at society6.com slash ohwitchplease or on a link through our website. I also want to mention that our, um, this this just feels so silly to me, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, (laughs) Our really wonderful listener, Katie Robeson, I hope I said that correctly, Katie has set up a GoFundMe to raise some money for us to go to Orlando to visit the world of Harry Potter. Um, It really is a thing we would so, so love to go and so love to um, record one or more episodes there. And it really is just that we can't um, sink our own money into the podcast for trips like this because we've got, Mm -hmm. you know, 
families and and other things. Dead. Some of us are trying to buy a condo in Vancouver. <laughs> so if that is an episode that you would like to hear and you want to chip in a little bit of money, that would be absolutely amazing because that would go towards making that episode possible. Uh, Katie set the goal for $1,500, which if every one of our Twitter followers gave 50 cents, we would reach really, really quickly. So um, yeah, yeah. I mean, consider it obviously no pressure, but it would be so amazing if we could, uh, if we could go to Orlando and, and record some episodes there. I promise I will, I will put a picture of the baby hippogriff in some kind of Harry Potter situation if we can go. <laughs> I just I just want to clarify that like we're super stoked about the idea of going to Orlando and doing this and uh you will not you will not be disappointed. <laughs> oh yeah, we will we will make it worth your while, she said <laughs> suggestively but also ambiguously. Oh wink. <laughs> Okay. Special thanks, as always, to Trevor Chow Fraser, our erstwhile tech support and the robot of our hearts. Hi, how are you doing? And tune in in one fortnight for a very special episode wherein I interview some folks who are affiliated with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra about the production of the music of Harry Potter, which happened here in Edmonton in June. Uh, And that episode will also feature a little guest spot from a dear friend of ours and my soul brother, Stephen Cheer, who is a (gasps) master of music. Oh my goodness, there's going to be Stephen Cheer content. That's thrilling. Mm -hmm. You guys don't know Stephen, but he's very tall. He's like a tall Neil. He's like a tall glass of Neil. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> you. <laughs> I don't want a glass of any man. That's <laughs> uh, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a delight. It was a lot of fun to record, and I'm looking forward to producing it. Fantastic. But but until next time, <laughs> later, witches. Incredible.